TGIM Team RE. This is episode 326. You know, playing it forward and, and kind of just playing it present, like where I'm at now. If I drink again, why would I want to go down that path? Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Eric. Eric took his last drink on March 9th, 2019. He is from upstate New York, and he is 42 years old. And before we get started, I wanted to let you all know that this quarter's Recovery Elevator donation went to an amazing nonprofit called The Phoenix. The Phoenix's mission is to build a sober, active community that fuels resilience and harnesses the transformational power of connection so that together we rise, recover, and live. Since 2006, the Phoenix has helped more than 42,000 people across America rise above addiction and harness the power of self-transformation. This organization was founded by Scott Strode and a core group of team members to be a safe, sober, active community of peers who support each other every day on the journey to recovery. If you want to check out what they do, head over to thephoenix.org. The only requirement to enroll to this organization and to attend any of their workout classes is to have at least 48 hours of sobriety. So how cool is that? The way to get a membership is through actually staying sober for two days and then you can attend their classes, which are all all across the country. You can go on their website and find a class near you. I highly recommend you check them out. And thank you all who support Recovery Elevator. Because of you, we are able to give back to other organizations that are doing amazing things for our community. So thank you, everybody. Alrighty, let's work on finding your better you. So I'm training for a marathon. I'm doing the San Diego Rock and Roll Marathon, which is six months out. And I decided to outsource some help for my training. Shout out to my sober coach, Paul, from Recovery Fit One. Paul was on the show on episode 316, in case you want to hear more about him and what he does. But anyway, I reached out to him. I told him that I needed some guidance in terms of training. You know, I need some help with cross training. I need some help with actually knowing when to run and how much to run so that I can complete this race. And I do have a type A personality. So I do well with rules. I knew that if I have a plan that I can follow, I'm very likely to stick to it. So I outsource some help and I've noticed some things. You know, I've noticed that even though this training is technically a training that I sought out so that I could complete this race, I've noticed that what I'm doing is really doing a lot of mind training because I'm not only looking to increase my physical strength and endurance, I'm also trying to retrain my brain and I'm trying to rewrite a story. I'm trying to build up my confidence because you see, running this race really terrifies me. I've had kids, I've gotten sober, I've gotten to treatment, I've done a lot of hard things and I believe I can do hard things, but crossing the finish line of a marathon scares me and it's the truth, I'm, I'm scared. When I was a little girl, 
there was this event at my school called Mini Olympics. There was a swimming portion, which I sucked at, and there was a track and field portion. Every student had to participate. And one year, I think it was second or third grade, I was the first one in my classroom to start this team rally portion where I was going to run with a baton. I think baton is the right word. I was going to run with a baton in my hand as fast as I could and then hand it over to a classmate that was out in the distance, probably, I don't know, less than a quarter mile away. So I remember the flag being waved. I remember starting to run, running as fast as I can. I remember slowly starting to move my weight onto the balls of my feet, onto my toes, and then I fell. My knees hit the pavement. I fell to the ground and my team fell to last place. So every year after that, I asked my mom to write me a sick note when the day of the mini Olympics came. I made a story that I wasn't a runner that I couldn't run and I believed that story. I fed that story. 25 years later and eight half marathons later, I still believe I'm not a runner. And every time I finish a half marathon, I think to myself, there's no way I could do a full marathon. I could barely even complete half, so there's no way. I also always cry at the finish line, like the ugly sob. Because even though I'm telling myself this story that I'm not a runner, I am at the same time proving that theory wrong by actually doing a race. And that feels extremely overwhelming. Now that I'm training, with every run, I try to visualize a positive outcome. I try to visualize the finish line. I try to see my family and my friends rooting for me from the sidelines. I try to think of myself getting to the finish, my ugly cry, everything. With every run, I am chipping away my old story and adding a couple of blocks onto my new belief, the story in which I believe that I can complete the race. We get stuck in our stories, even the bad ones, sometimes especially the bad ones. They're all we know. They are our comfort blankets. And at some point, we have to let them go. We have to take a leap and believe that we are capable of doing things differently, of standing strong and confident without our comfort blanket. So what stories about this alcohol-free journey are keeping you trapped? Maybe you're noticing patterns in which you feel stuck. Like maybe you're hitting the reset button on your tracker after 30 days every time you make it there. Or you're stopping at the liquor store on your way home, even though you said you wouldn't. Can you try something different and write a different story? We all have the right to change, and we have the right to change into as many versions of ourselves as we desire to be. We have the right to prove ourselves wrong. All right, eso es todo. And before we hear from Eric, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Caferi almost immediately after I found it and was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me right away. One of the things that I realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community, people all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that truly understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey, especially when I came across some bumps on the road. 
When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $24 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner, you can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of our monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to see you all there. Hey, Eric. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Hi, Odette. I am doing amazing. How are you doing? I'm really good. I was looking forward to our conversation today all morning. So thank you so much. No problem. Me too. This is going to be a real treat. Yes. And let's get right to it, Eric. When was the last time you had a drink? So the last time I had a drink was on March 9th of 2019. Well, over a year. How are you feeling about sobriety? I'm feeling good. It's been a journey. It's had ups. It's had downs. It's had stable. <laughs> but if you I feel a lot more, you know, at peace. I can definitely see a difference within myself. So it's it's been a journey and it continues to be a journey. Yeah, it continues to be a journey. And can you give listeners a little background on yourself, Eric? Can you let us know where you're from? What do you do for a living? Do you have a family and what do you like to do for fun? Sure, those are all great questions. Um we can kind of get right into it. I mean, I grew up in upstate New York and, you know, had a pretty good childhood. I don't really, you know, my parents got divorced when I was, mm, I want to say maybe 11 or 12. Uh, moved down here to Fort Lauderdale right after high school. And then I uh, moved back to New York probably about five years after that. And I went to college and then I moved to LA and things like that. So I kind of been all over, but now I'm in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm 42. I'm single, living it up down here in the Sunshine State, and just excited about this um, podcast. Yeah. What do you like to do for fun, Eric? I mean, I know we're still in the middle of this pandemic, but what are some of your hobbies and what do you like to do with your free time? No, that's a really good question. I mean, yes, with COVID, obviously, it's been a little bit more binge um, watching TV, which is kind of already up my alley, which I love to do anyways. But I am craving those kind of like in-person meetups. So, you know, meetup.com is a great website for doing things like that. And slowly but surely down here, people are kind of feeling more comfortable with going out to breakfast or going out to dinners and things like that. So we're slowly but surely getting there. So I'd say like everything from like planning events and doing little like meetups like that to just relaxing and binge watching and maybe having a bath if I had a bad day. Yes, I love it. So give listeners some background on your history with drinking. When did you start? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your purpose? And when did you decide to stop? Sure, that's a great question. I started my very first drink was 
back at my junior prom and it was just more of a, ooh, let's get into my dad's secret stash. I think it was like Manhattan and I don't know, some kind of like liquor that I don't even remember. Had a horrible, well, I had a good night, but it was not really, you know, we didn't get too drunk to where we threw up or anything like that. That was the very first time I had any interaction with it. And after that, I had moved to Florida and really wasn't exploring alcohol that much. And then it wasn't until my mid-20s when I moved back up to upstate New York when I started going to college. And that was when I really started exploring alcohol and kind of realizing, you know, the effects of it on my life. Um, most days, if I if we didn't have anything to do for school, I would be drunk um, pretty much all day or go meet people at the bar. I went to a really small town college where they would actually have a, an event called the Bridge Street Run. And the goal of that event is you wear a white t-shirt, you start at one end of the road, and you go to every single bar, and there's probably like 20 or 30 bars, and you go in each bar and you get a drink, and everybody kind of signs your shirt and I remember doing that event and the news covered it. And I remember on that nightly news, they said, oh, Bridge Street Run, a place to hang out with your friends and catch up or, and then they cue the camera on me, get completely wasted or something like that. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I remember I hung out with these two girls that were twins and they were standing behind me and I was like swaying, like, you know, they were kind of like standing behind me, but, and my shirt was all, you know, people drew nipples and drew like all kinds of like stuff and, and signed stuff. And I went, to, I went to class the next day and people were like, was that you? And I'm like, yeah, that was me. Yeah, I was there. And then it just progressed. At that you point, know, though, in, in college and after experiences like that, did you question your drinking or did you just think like, I'm just living it up in college the way that most people do? Right. I'm just living it up in college like most people do. It really wasn't until... I moved to Los Angeles and when I got my first DUI, that was in 2010, that was really when I was like, holy shit, like, oh my goodness, this is, this is a problem. Like I, I need to take the test. I need to take the quizzes. What can I do? That was when I really started to scratch the surface of, I, I think I have a problem. When you got your DUI, were you like driving back from a party? Were you driving back from work? What was the context of that drinking and driving scenario? So I'll never forget, we were at a, it was some kind of like party and there was a lot of beer. It was like a beer party at somebody's house. And it was with a bunch of friends from college that had moved out there as well to Los Angeles. And I think I had been there maybe three years and I think they had just moved out there maybe a couple years previously or something like that. And so, you know, it was nice because we all had that connection. We all went to college together. We knew each other. And so that particular night we were at a party and I remember I didn't have my car, but then my friend wanted to hook up with a guy. And so she's like, well, we can go back. We'll get your car. And then I'm going to go back to the party. She was going to hook up with this guy and spend the night. And I'm like, well, I want to go. I, I want to continue partying. So I grabbed my car, continued partying, just drinking beer. And I think it was around two or three in the morning. And I kind of wasn't too familiar with the area. And so I remember going home and in, in out Los Angeles, you know, to get in order to get on the highway, you have to go up and there's like a stoplight and then you can go and get on the ramp. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, I think it was, I remember going up there and somebody was, somebody was off to the side and I'm like, it's 3am in the morning. I'm not going to help this person. I don't know what's going on with that car. So I just kind of went around that. And then I went through and I guess there was an accident, a really bad accident on the other side and cops were like flashing their flashlight. Well, I guess I like kept going past them and almost ran them over because they both came to court. And I think I was swearing at them because I think I thought in my mind another car was going the wrong way. And I was like, what are you doing, you idiot? With your <laughs> And meanwhile, I was yelling at the cops. But in my mind... I thought it was a car going the wrong way because all I saw was lights. And I think I thought in my mind, so I went and I got off at, I think, Hollywood Boulevard. And I'll never forget, it was like, by this time it was like 3.34 in the morning, something like that. And they pulled me over. They actually got in their car, followed me, went to, it was right in front of Hollywood Bowl. And that was my first time getting arrested. I don't think I, I don't think I blew and the breathalyzer, but I do remember they cuffed me with like wristbands, not handcuffs, like kind of like the plastic things. Mm -hmm. And they put me in the front. They brought me back to the car accident, which was really bad. And he was like, this is where you, this is where you almost ran us over and see and blah, blah, blah. And, and I was like, uh, it was just horrible. It was a horrible experience. And then my friends came and got me or came over. I think they came and got me from jail the next day. My girlfriend's from, from college. And we, I just was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I did this. And, you know, of course they're like, it's okay. It happens to everyone. You know, we all drink a lot and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, you know, that, I, I, that's I, what I was going to say too. Cause you said that after this, you, started wondering, oh, do I really have a problem? I have to take the quizzes, the tests. And I feel, I don't know if this is right. I'm coming from Mexico where DUIs are very different than here. And I feel like that is a typical response when you get a DUI when you're young. It's like, oh, it happens to everyone. Don't worry about it. Like even with the fines and with all the hours that you have to do and all of that, it's still kind of minimized in a way but it sounds like for you it definitely planted a seed and got you curious about what was going on what happened afterwards no I think you're absolutely right and I I almost look at my quote-unquote drinking career through the eyes and the lenses of all my DUIs because I've had three in 10 years so after that first one in 2010 I went to AA. I kind of had my first experience with that, uh, you know, getting an attorney, going to court, having to do all the other stuff. Think, I'm pretty sure I had to do a, a victim impact panel. All of the money, all the expense that it costs to now you have to get higher insurance. You have to get a special certi certification, um, just all of the cost and, and thing. But like you said, it is very minimized. And I do remember taking one of those quizzes and I think it was like around, you may have a serious problem with alcohol or you may have, but my inner voice, it's like my gut knew, but I just went along with my friends and I, I, I feel like I just... I, I didn't listen to my gut. I didn't listen to my inner self saying, you do need help. You need to, you know, figure this out. And shortly after that happened, I moved here to Florida and, and got all my, you know, attorneys and all that stuff behind me. And I picked up right where I left off. I was meeting guys in bars. I didn't really know too many people, but I did have friends from when I first lived here back in the 90s. And so I met up with some of them. They were still partiers. So my second DUI was in 2013, just three years later. 
And same kind of thing, you know, I went up there to a friend's house. I didn't want to drink. I just, I remember, I remember wanting to look for plane tickets to go home to New York to see my family for Thanksgiving. Cause it was like November 16th and I get there and he's all dialed up and ready to go. And I wasn't dressed to go out at all. So of course I have a couple drinks and then I'm like, woo, let's go. All right. Now I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. So we, we went out. I ripped my jeans from dancing. I think we went to a Walmart drunk and we I bought a pair of new jeans because of course I can't be out and rip jeans. <laughs> so then we then we did that. Then we wanted to get some party favors to keep the night going. So we had a great idea of driving from West Palm Beach to Fort Lauderdale, which is probably about 45 minutes to an hour. And by this time, I mean, we both were pretty drunk. So I did that. I get off the exit down here in Fort Lauderdale. I'm going like 80 and a 35. He's smoking his cigarette, blasting the radio, and I'm like trying to juggle all this stuff. And I got arrested. You know, I got pulled over. Yeah. You know, I blew. I I remember this time I blew over a 0.15. And, you know, the same kind of thing. I went to court and I got really lucky because they never found out about my first UI in Los Angeles. So mm. I was so lucky to have that opportunity and I messed it up again like five years later when I got my third DUI. (laughs) What was your drinking like in between DUIs? So the DUIs are almost like these rock bottom moments where we've discussed in previous episodes and and I've heard in other conversations of like you think that that would make you stop drinking but we keep drinking it's just the insanity of it all but tell me a little bit more about what was your day-to-day and your behavior your relationship with alcohol between these rock bottom moments of the DUIs? Were you drinking daily? Were you drinking a ton? Were you blacking out a lot? Right. No, good question. The After my first one, I think it scratched the surface. And I think I was like, okay, I think I have a problem. Again, like you had said, I do feel like people do minimize it. I don't know what it is. They just, maybe they don't want to you know, th- look further inside themselves, but I think it's more of a deeper look at your inside what's going on Mm -hmm. and at that point I was pretty much like a binge drinking partier which I I kind of has been my whole life I've been more of like a celebratory binge drinker when something good happens or holidays and things like that celebration means alcohol so that was from my first DUI after my second one I did go for I want to say about four months I dabbled again back in AA And I came to a point where I really, really thought I had moderation. I was like, I can do this. I can be quote unquote a normal drinker. And I would, I would go out to dinner. I would have one drink. I would be fine. I would go out to the movies with some friends, have a beer. You know, I was able to moderate. However, then there were still those times where that shutoff valve in my brain, which I never had, didn't shut off. And... I thought for five years I could do the moderation. And I think maybe deep down I really did know that I think I really do have a problem, but it was just not as prevalent as before, which led to, you know, five years later in 2018, about three or four weeks after my 40th birthday, I got my third DUI in 2018. So, you know, I think it went from 
every weekend in 2010 to 2013, binging, partying a lot, drinking every weekend, and then and blacking out. And then after 2013, I did try and moderate. I went for like five years where I did four months, I think, in, in there somewhere um, where I didn't drink at all because I know I had a breathalyzer. So that was really like I couldn't. But I do remember calling up a friend of mine because I was lonely. And I knew he was a big drinker. We went to an 80s concert, and it, it was kind of the same thing. We were pre-gaming on the drive up there. He's drinking. We're both drinking, but he's driving. And then I remember the next morning I had to go to work, and I blew into the breathalyzer, and it, it came up positive. So the guy that installed it said, if you ever go out or if it's a false positive, if don't blow it more than like two or three times or your car will completely lock up, and you'll have to have it towed. So I got up the next morning. Clearly, I was still drunk. And so I blew into it. It didn't go through. So I took a cab to work. And that's kind of been the whole path of, you know, the alcohol and the destruction that it does. Thank you for sharing that you attempted and even, I mean, from the outside, even succeeded at moderation for a period of time, right? There's a lot of right. uh, attempts at moderation. There's a lot of beliefs about maybe I can get it. And I know Paul recently made a video on Instagram and even asked our audience, like, do you believe in moderation? Has it worked for you? And the general consensus is definitely like it works until it doesn't. You know, it's almost like we we make up right. all these rules and we and we maybe use up our willpower or who knows. But sometimes it's just a slow and steady progression. And like you're saying, deep down, there was this gut feeling, this intuition of, you know, this isn't going to end well. That's that's how I describe my my gut or intuition of like that inner voice telling me I'm going to have to quit. I was just like, I just feel like this feels dangerous. Like from the outside, people think I'm having a good time just having one glass and and everything's cool. But internally, I was like, like the terror, the, right. the, the song right. of a horror movie, like, oh, like no. <laughs> Well, and and the thing that you said is really funny, and I, I'm actually so thankful that I didn't go down this path, but I think I was headed there. On the, the third time I got my DUI, I simply had got up. It was Labor Day weekend, so I knew I had an extra day to kind of recover, and so I just started drinking vodka and Gatorade. I was like, I remember talking to my mom. I was doing laundry. I was swimming. I was having a gay old time. I was loving it. I was like, woo, three-day weekend. And I think that was the start of me, like, if I continued down that path, I would have been drinking every day by myself, because usually I wasn't like that. But that particular day, that's what I did. I was like up and I was doing chores and I was drinking the whole day. I had made plans to go to, to uh, see a movie with one of my friends. I called him. He said, you were completely drunk. I got into an argument with a couple guys in the pool, which I kind of remember, but kind of don't. I think I wanted a cigarette and they wouldn't give me one. I, I like pushed them or slapped them or something. I don't know. Something happened between these two guys. And then I think I fell asleep. And I think I, what I happened was I woke up. And I thought I was late to the movies. And then I drove and I, I realized, I think at some point I kind of came to or kind of like had a split second where I was like, wait a minute, I'm too drunk. What am I doing driving? And I turned around and it was literally probably like 
two or three minutes away from my house and I got pulled over and I did the, I actually did the, I didn't blow, but I did, I did the test and my attorney was like, you did really good in the beginning, but at the end, not so well. And so now I can laugh at the video. I mean, I still have it. And some days I'll just be like, I never, it's just another reminder. I like, I never want to be like that again. And I think with age too, I mean, the, the older you get, I mean, it's just, it's not fun anymore. You know, it's not, it's not where you want to be in, in life. Yeah. You know? And other than you getting the DUIs and those repercussions, what other parts of your life were being affected by alcohol during like this 2013 to your last drink time span? I think a lot of it was, you know, friendships. I was pretty horrible with um, getting on antidepressants as well for a period from, I want to say, 2016 to 2018. That mix was horrible. Um, I have one really good friend who actually lives in Orlando, and I love him to death. And we're still good friends. He's so happy I'm, I'm sober. But I've known him since college, so he's known me from – college days of drinking to DUI years of drinking to drinking when I'm on antidepressants. And I mean, I would just say the nastiest stuff. I would act like an ass. And I think just the progression of, of it that damaged some friendships and some of them were still, you know, by the grace of God, like still, you know, formed, um, you know, and I, I think that has been like the biggest one, like the person that I got, um, pulled over in t- 2013, like, I just feel like I couldn't be around him. I don't blame anyone. It, these are all my choices by far. It's nobody else. However, I do feel like sometimes the people that you hang around with, you know, that peer pressure is really what was always my downfall. Like it was really hard for me to say no. Even if I said no a couple times, I would eventually be like, oh, fine, just give me a freaking drink. And I think it's easier for me just to kind of distance myself from people like that and have people in my universe that are supportive, that understand the struggle that I've gone through to get here and that don't want to see that that Eric again, that want to, that are comfortable and happy with sober Eric, not you know, drunk life of the party, Eric. Yeah, I mm-hmm. love that reflection, Eric. And it's almost like I mentioned this in another interview. You you went from saying yes to other people and no to yourself to now being able to set boundaries and say no to other people and other things and yes to Eric and uh, the new Eric that you've been getting to know for a couple of years now. So I love hearing that. Did you have a rock bottom or a a, a rough day when you had your last drink or was that just a normal day and you just decided that you were going to stop? How was the end for you? I'm glad you brought it up because I, it, it was a very tough, challenging decision for me to make. And what I mean by that is after Labor Day weekend, I still, uh, again, this is, you know, goes back to like people you surround your universe with. It was the next weekend after my third DUI and my friend came down. He needed to par- he parked his car at my place and he um, he needed a ride to Fort Lauderdale because he was flying out for some music gig. And and we ended up drinking all that night and drinking and partying. And then here I am taking him to the airport at like, I don't know, five, six in the morning after being up all night. 
if I would have blown a breathalyzer, I would have been drunk. So even after that, it was like, what the hell? And I just remember driving home being like, what in the hell am I thinking? Am I doing? And right after that, that next day, I went into AA and I was in Alcoholics Anonymous for six months. And during that time, I was chairing meetings. I was uh, working with a sponsor. I was reading all the books, doing all of the information that I needed to do. And then when I went to court in March, I was looking at 60 days in jail. And, and that was like just really – I was so afraid of that. I, I had been working at a great company that gave me 30 days off, but I couldn't afford 60 days. I mean I just – I don't know what I would have done. So they – my attorney just said, hold on. Let me just go and talk to the prosecutor. He went and talked with her. And he threw in if I wore a um, – it's called a scram ankle monitor, a secure continuous remote alcohol monitor. And he said, if he wears that for a year, will you take the 60 days in jail off the table? And her and the judge said yes. So that was March 5th. March 9th was when I had to go to treatment. Now, every treatment center I called after I would tell them, yeah, I'm in AA and I have six months sober. They were like, well, what do you need treatment for? We're, we can't admit you. Oh, I, like you're already sober. What do you even need? Oh, that hurts right. my heart. Right. So it's such a flawed system and I really would love to like work on trying to get that rectified because it's like here I'm trying to better myself and do something to help myself but you're telling me since I've already have this much time sober that I can't get in. So I had to end up lying to them and just telling them um, and I think they knew because they could tell. I'm like no I, I, I drank two bottles of vodka tonight um, and, and 24 beers. Uh, I, I just got two 12 packs and then I needed that acceptance letter for when I went to court. So needless to say that day, March 9th, we'll, we'll go there. March 9th, I was really afraid if I didn't do 30 days in the treatment center, they would have given me, they would have put me in jail. So if, if I would have went in sober, I, I actually talked to the caseworker at the treatment center. She said, if you would have came in here sober, we did the piss and the blood test. You would probably have been here a week or two. So I probably would have gone to jail for two weeks. So I was petrified of that. I, I just, I was scared shitless. And on March 9th, I remember waiting for the van and I talked to my neighbor about it, who was, he was extremely helpful. She was such a blessing. She watched my apartment. She took care of my car. I mean, she was like amazing throughout this whole journey. And so what happened was I went to, um, I went to Starbucks. I didn't know what coffee shop she was going to be at. I feel like my higher power brought me there. We talked about it. And I said, if, if I get drunk with you, will you make sure I get on the van? And then that way, if I go and they see how drunk I am, it's like you get, you get a seven day blackout period if you show up and you're like messed up. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was like, let me do that. So she even had a hard time because she was very like supportive of, you know, I'd come home and be like, look, I got my one month shit from AA. Look, I got my three months. Look, I did. So I mean, God, you had to hack the system basically. Right. And it was, it was such a dichotomy. I mean, it was such a hard decision for both of us. But I really feel that I, I just I don't know what jail would have given me. I mean, maybe I maybe I wouldn't have. You know, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. But I just, you know, to the thought of having to do even two weeks in jail mm-hmm. was 
not something I wanted to do or and, even experience. And scary, like you said. And and you had to put yeah. in all that work too, the six months. Oh, Eric, that had to be so rough. Right. So it was, you know, it was a really hard decision because I had worked so hard at my sobriety and I had been doing so well. And it was just such a, a like a last minute decision. I mean, I talked about it with my sponsor as well. And of course he said, no, you know, don't do it. Let the system play out and things like that. And I just, I, I, I just had that gut feeling like I have to do this. And then when I went to go grab coffee and she was there, it was just kind of like, I feel like it was fate or like my higher power was like, he brought me to that coffee shop. I had, out of all the coffee shops we had gone to, I had no idea she was going to be at that one. And so we talked about it and I had said, you know, and it was so last minute because the van was coming in like an hour or so. And I'm like, I'm packed. I'm, I'm ready to go. But I'm just really scared of, of going to jail for a week, two weeks. I, I, I don't want to know what that's like. So that is the last time I got completely shit faced that day, um, made an ass out of myself. I, I think I assaulted one of my neighbors that I had a crush on. So he was cool, though, after I got out. But still, it was just kind of like it was, uh, you know, it was like, ah, you know, it was kind of like, a, you know, because the van was running late. Like she was actually calling my neighbor was actually calling the van like, you got to get here. This is a crisis mode. He's, he's out of control, you know, and I, I was just my mindset was like, I'm going to get as drunk as I need to. I'm just going to keep on drinking so i'm in that i'm in that facility for 30 days because i do not want to go to jail i i did not want to experience that i had already been there three times so i didn't want to go for you know a fourth time for a, a duration because when you you know when you get a dui it's mainly you go in you sober up and then the next day they let you out i never thought in a million years i'd say i did that three times but here we are today and here I am now with almost two years under my belt and I got to just kind of, you know, appreciate and respect the fact that I did it again. And, you know, I did a lot longer than six months and, and I'm still trying to figure it all out. I don't have, I don't, I wish there was a magic pill or like an instruction manual to this. I have no clue what I'm doing, but you know what? I'm sober. I'm and that's the only thing that matters. <laughs> yeah, I'm so proud of you. I, I know you've been a member in our community for a few months now, but I didn't know some of the stories you're sharing here. And I just I really admire you and appreciate you sharing because that that had to be really hard. So thank you for your vulnerability, Eric. And and tell me how it was. I mean, you were in, in the treatment center for 30 days. And then once you got out, did you just go back to the AA meetings that you were going to? Or what was life after after being in treatment? Yeah, that was a good question. Um, the treatment center ended up being such a blessing in disguise. I mean, they take away everything from you and you are there and for the first like two weeks, somebody is constantly in your room. Your door is always unlocked. So, I mean, even the fear of like, I'm half asleep, but then somebody comes in with a flashlight, like that was took getting used to. But you don't have any outside communication. So it really made me like take a deep look at myself. And I had done things that I hadn't done in years, like a simple, you know, going outside at the end of night and like just laying on a bench with my journal and just looking at the stars. I haven't done that in years, you know, just kind of 
really took a good hard look at myself and um you you know you go to therapy every day and things like that so after that i got out after 30 days i had my job still um so i went back to work uh i did have to get rid of my car because i didn't have a license i still don't have a license for 2 years so i did that and then i had to get the ankle monitor on so I went and I got rid of my car. I got my ankle monitor on. And then the company I was working for went under. Um, they filed bankruptcy. So then I had to bike around town and look for jobs and things like that with this ankle monitor on, which I still don't know to this day how in the heck I did any of that. I kind of had a falling out with my sponsor just because he wanted, he felt like since I drank, um, I needed to start all over. And I didn't necessarily agree with that 100% because I feel like I did a lot of the work. And yes, I did drink. I just felt like it was a really, really unique situation <laughs> that I was in. I mean, you know, they say you know, when you drink, you act like an ass, or you have lewd conduct, or you go to jail. It was like, I needed to drink to stay out of jail. It was just a, a it's really a completely weird... unique situation. <laughs> right, right. And I just didn't see any other way out of it. And even when I was in treatment, I mean, after I started getting to know the caseworkers and things like that, I mean, I eventually was honest with them and told them what I did. Even my own therapist, I said, honestly, look, this is the situation. This is what happened. And they're like, we understand. I mean, that it's the system, you know, I mean, if you have if I had the, the decision to go from that treatment center to jail. I'm going to pick that treatment center hands down. They had really good food. I learned so much there. It was a, a great work. I mean, I still talk to the therapist that I had. So I just, you know, AA is is such a blessing because there's so many different meetings. So I, I didn't work with that sponsor, but I, I did find a meeting that I liked. It took a while, but I found a meeting I liked. And so I was going and I, I liked the format. I really didn't get that much into it again, though, with the work and the steps and the sponsor and the chairing. So then COVID hit and that was kind of took away from it and it went kind of offline and then in between there, I was pretty much dealing with COVID, but the job that I was working, I was pretty much working like every day for like three weeks. We had a big project. And I hate that. I feel like now that I'm talking about it, I feel like I'm making excuses. But um, needless to say, I had the ankle monitor on. I stayed sober the entire time. And then from there, like in July of last year is when I found Recovery Elevator. And I've really been really just kind of, you know, it's like, it's funny because, okay, AA, you have a sponsor or sponsee and things like that. Well, in Recovery Elevator, you have an accountability partner. Uh, you go to meetings for Alcoholics Anonymous. What do you do? We have webinars. You know, part of doing service is cleaning up after a meeting or staying afterwards to chat. Well, what do we do? We have Facebook, we have WhatsApp, we have Marco Polo. So, there's a lot of similarities, I feel like, with Recovery Elevator and Alcoholics Anonymous. And we even have an AA webinar. So I feel like I'm doing the right thing. And, you know, I'm just taking it day by day. Like, I don't have any of this figured out. But all I know is that I know I need to stay sober. And some days are really, really hard. And some days are beautiful. 
you know, now I can take the time and see a sunrise or see a sunset and appreciate it and be in the moment and not be hungover, not feel like crap, not feel empty and dead inside and not have the physical effects of throwing up, having to clean up after yourself. You know, there's puke in the shower, there's puke here, there. You know, it's just, it's, it's great to be sober and it's a daily chore and it's a lot of work, but it's really worth it. And something I love that I used to say when I used to go to the meetings is, you know, it works if you work it. So work it because you're worth it. Completely. And, you know, there is no perfect way or proper way to get sober. I know there's a lot of modalities that exist, AA being one of the most known modalities and one of the biggest, you know, I think I heard a stat somewhere where they talked about how big the organization actually was when you when it's been scaled, you know, and it's been something that's been scaled, not just in our country, but in the world. So it's a huge organization. But here at Recovery Elevator, I mean, it's not just Cafe RE. It's also we know that there are other people who have support groups. We know there's smart recovery. It to us, honestly, it doesn't really matter so long as you continue to try and so long as you find your community wherever that is, because that's what we've discovered is kind of like the secret sauce is wherever you find community and feel comfortable and feel supported. There's something to say about sticking, sticking close to those people and and staying there, because that's what we ultimately ultimately believe that is going to really help us, especially when we're struggling. But there is no right way to get sober. I mean, Eric, you keep saying, I still don't know what I'm doing. Neither do I, but we're doing it, you know, and we are showing up every day sharing. I really appreciate you always being so positive and supporting and honest because, yeah, not every day is freaking sunshine and butterflies. And the, the thing about being sober is that now you can be present for the good days and also for the bad days, because, I mean, I don't know about anybody sober or not who tells their story and says that they've only had good days. I mean, shitty days are part of life, but now we get to be present for all days because that's what happens when we're not sober is that we become absent from the bad days, but then also from the good days. So what's the point, right? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I was thinking about it. I know it sounds funny. I would love to get to the point where there is like a recovery elevator, just like AA and like meetings are like different webinars. Like, okay, today's topic is going to be, you know, gratitude or thankfulness or sobriety and employment. I mean, we do the webinars, but I would love for recovery elevator to be so almost as big as AA because I feel like I love all the webinars and things. I think everybody, a lot of people in recovery elevator too, the meetups are too like one of the key aspects like just like AA like that's the same thing that's like for a while I I don't think I was really applying AA I think it was after my second DUI I was just going looking for men I was like maybe I'll get a date I was like that was my only like that was my only focus for a while when I was doing AA I think after my second DUI I was like well I want to see if I can get a boyfriend like that's um sober (laughs) so it's like where else am I gonna go I'm like duh I should have been listening maybe subconsciously I was like listening to the content but I remember for a while I was like I can do this I can moderate I got this I can definitely moderate and I'm like oh my god what a dumbass (laughs) (laughs) oh Eric (laughs) 
with almost two years, tell me about your relationship with alcohol now. Like, do you still get cravings? Do you even think about alcohol? How do you even relate to alcohol these days? No, I mean, you know, I had a lot of firsts. I'm so thankful that that first year I had that monitor because I think it took me that to get out of all of the humps. I mean, I had to go to New York and see my dad's side of the family for because his brother passed away, my uncle, and there he, he's a he's a big drinker. Um, that side of the family drinks more like in moderation. I don't think everybody's like you know has a drinking problem and things like that. But again, it's kind of like my dad and I, that is our connection was alcohol. So, I mean, it was very scary for me. Then I was at the airport and it was like a six hour layover. And I'm, I was, let's see, let's see, March, April, May, June. It was only four months of sobriety. So I had that monitor on and I was like scared to death, but I mean, I, I didn't want to chance anything with that thing. So that first year having that monitor helped me out in so many ways to realize that I, A, I can still have fun without alcohol. Um, B, I can be in public spaces where there's alcohol present. And if I want to leave, I just leave. I just grab an Uber or I grab my bike. I have an exit plan or I just continue and just drink cherry Cokes or whatever. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And then I think what I'm really focusing on more now is building connections and relationships and just overall handling like COVID and, and doing this and just kind of like exploring a little bit more about who I am, who I want to be and, and who I want to be to on this world, like as a human being, you know, and, and alcohol now, like, um, I think I kind of got off track, but with the whole cravings and thoughts, you know, sometimes when I watch TV, but then what really works for me the most is playing that tape forward and just seeing, like, I know it would never be one drink. And, if, and even if it was one drink today, it would be another DUI down the road. And that would be jail time for sure. You know, I mean, I'm still dealing with the aftermath of the third one. Like, I don't, I'll get, I'll be eligible for a hardship license in March, which is right around the corner. Um, so I'm thankful for that. But it's been a full two years with no license. I can get a hardship license, and then I, I'll get a breathalyzer for two years, and then I won't even have a regular full license. Like to the point where, if I wanted to go to Atlanta or something like that. I won't be able to get into a car and actually do that until 2029. So I have a 10 year revocation. So thinking of things like that wow. <laughs> definitely keep me sober. I mean, I, I, you know, playing it forward and, and kind of just playing it present, like where I'm at now, if I drink again, why would I want to go down that path? And it does get easier with time. I mean, it really does. You kind of start figuring things out and you just realize that nobody really cares. I mean, I started a new job and they had a holiday party. I'm like, oh, everyone's going to be wondering why I don't drink. Nobody gave two shits. Nobody <laughs> cared. Oh, my God. And then they even had um, um, they had LaCroix. And I was like probably somebody else here is an alcoholic. I don't know. Like nobody gave two shits, but it's, it's our own internal processing. And we think like, I think sometimes people think like everybody's going to be looking or everyone's going to be wondering, why don't you drink? 
you know, and it's, it's, it's really not that bad. And, and you, you get used to it over time. You know, if I go to a restaurant now and somebody's like, you look like a martini guy. And I'm like, no, I'm actually a lemonade kind of guy. I mean, you just, you, you get more comfortable with it, it you know, with time, time heals all wounds. I'm a firm, firm believer in that. Time so. definitely helps. And it does get better. Um, that those thoughts around alcohol get better, how we respond to it, like you said, and also nobody, nobody is that interested in us, especially at the party when everyone's drinking, everyone's focused on their drink, not on ours. So we right. mostly get concerned in our minds. And, and I hear you, Eric, we've reached the rapid fire round. This is, oh we, I feel okay. like, I feel like we could talk for a couple of hours. We're going to have to bring you back for session two. But I know. If I you can it. answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. Okay. What has this journey made possible for you? Um, this journey has made possible for me to really get to know myself and to really see and look inside and see who I want to be as a human being and how I interact with the universe. What's your go-to response when someone offers you a drink? No, thank you. What is your favorite ice cream flavor, Eric? Rocky Road. Yum. What's an unexpected perk of this journey? I like that I'm, I have more patience and I'm more in the moment because you really, we really are only here for a short amount of time. I mean, yeah, maybe 80, 90 years. But, you know, it's like when you're outside and you see a sunrise or a sunset, you will most likely never see the clouds in that formation again, the sun that just right. So just learning how to appreciate what we ha have in this world and where we are. And especially like for me, I just, I, I love living in Florida because we have this weather where it's just, it's beautiful all year round. And I just, sometimes I just, I have to pinch myself because I just, I love being in the moment. Yeah. Being able to actually be grateful, feel gratitude, even notice 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 these things that we can't notice when we're not present you know so i love that that is also one of my favorite right. perks what parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze eric i would say stick with it listen to your gut it, it's not going to be hard it's not going to be easy um you know all of us have had plenty of day ones don't beat yourself up don't keep saying well i only have four days well i only have 20 days. You have 20 days. You have 20 freaking days of sobriety. For some people that takes years, you know, be thankful for what you have. Um, stick with it. I know it's really hard, but stick with it and um, keep coming back. That's what I'd say. And before we depart, Eric, can you give listeners your own? You may have to say adios to booze if line. <laughs> you may have to say adios to booze. If after a night out of drinking, you're, this happened for a while when I lived in Los Angeles, I would constantly go out drinking and then I would get up and have to look and see if my car was damaged, if my car was in the parking lot. And one time I thought my car was there and my friend said, no, I think it's still in front of the bar and there's a, there's a ticket on your window. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure I drove home. It wasn't, it, that was my car with a ticket. I had to take a cab and go. That's how drunk I was, that I thought my car was there in the parking lot, my complex and it wasn't it was out in front of mickey's or something so um yeah 
that's adios, booze. None of no more of those nights. No mas, no mas, no mas. <laughs> Bye, you little puto. <laughs> Bye, alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love you. I am so happy that this journey brought me to you and brought you to our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. Anytime, Odette. Anytime. I love you so much. And I'm so glad we were able to do this. Yes. Take care. Love you back. Very well, Timari. That's a wrap for our interview today. And for today's outro, I'm doing something a little bit differently. I'm going to have a little conversation with Alan regarding Cafe RE. Recovery Elevator, I am super excited to welcome a guest to our outro of today's episode. We have Alan who is going to talk to us a little bit about Cafe RE. You know, we get a lot of questions, a lot of inquiries, a lot of people wondering, what is Cafe RE still? How does it work? What does it mean? How do I get in? And I figured that there was nobody that could talk about this best than Alan. He onboards all of our new members, and I have him here with us. Alan, what's up, my man? Hello, Odette. Thank you for having me. I'm um, I'm glad we're finally doing this. It seems like we've kind of been talking about it for a while, and long overdue, I think. So, yeah, I appreciate it. It's going to be good. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm going to have Liz drop your episode in the show notes because Alan was one of the first people that I interviewed when I came on and his story is extremely moving and powerful. So people can sign on and check that out if they want. But for now, tell us, Alan, a little bit about your role in Recovery Elevator. You are one of my colleagues in this amazing, cool job that we have as a part-time side hustle. And what is your role within Recovery Elevator? What do you do for us here? Part-time side hustle. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that. Yeah. So I've been a part of Cafe Ari since January the 1st of 2020. So just to give a little context. And I dove in and, and, and just got super involved in the community. And, and it, um, it, it just did so much for me. And, and as a result of that, you know, Paul Churchill tapped me on the shoulder probably six or seven months ago and said, hey, you know, we'd love for you to help out with our new members and, and, and helping them come, become part of our community. I said, absolutely. I'd love to do that. And so really my role, I frame into two separate parts as it relates to our new members. The first being trying to create the most welcoming environment I possibly can for people that are coming into Cafe Ari. I think I know that any group that you join, any one of them um, that has people that are already a part of the community, et cetera, you're coming in new. I mean, that's going to be intimidating and it's, it's going to be, it's going to be hard in certain cases. And there's some anxiety related to that, right? Any group. And so that's certainly no different here. You couple that with the fact that we're all trying to figure out this journey, trying to figure out what the next step is in terms of uh, becoming sober and what that looks like for you. And so there, there's anxiety associated with joining that type of uh, community. And we get that. I get that. So I'm trying to create as comfortable of a situation as possible. Uh, you know, whether you're on day one, day 10, day 100, day 1,000, maybe you're not even counting days. I think I want everybody to know that we're all the same here. Um, you, me, Paul, all of us, uh, we're trying to figure this out just like everybody else. And that's the first thing. So create a welcoming environment and make sure everybody feels safe. The second thing is really educating people on what Cafe RE has to offer. Because I think at 
you know, at first glance, for most of us, me included, when you join Cafe Area, you tend to think, okay, it's one big Facebook group. And while Facebook and the groups, we have multiple groups at Cafe Area, but the um, Facebook, while it's a part of our community, it's only a part. There are several components of Cafe RE that might not be as obvious as the Facebook group in and of itself. So, so that's the second thing. So the first thing, make sure our members feel welcome and safe. Second thing is to make sure they are educated about all the things that we have going on here at RE. Yeah, and that answer to the, the second part of your answer brings me to my next question. So as you mentioned, there are multiple components to being a Cafe RE member. So if you are just casually chatting with someone and you let them know that one of your tools is being a member in this community called Cafe RE, if you could explain it to them in a nutshell, what would you say it is? You know, what are some membership perks? What does it even entail? Yeah, so I have the opportunity and I love it. So I, I, I do group orientation sessions. I do two a month. Um, but I also do one-on-ones with our new members too that either can't make um, the new member orientation and or they'd rather speak with somebody one-on-one. And the very first thing I tell them, Odette, for the most part is Cafe RE in a nutshell uh, provides us an opportunity to connect with like-minded people. It's, it's, a, it's a community to connect. And I think what many of us learn uh, through this experience is that connection is a very vital part to the to this journey for for most of us, if not all of us. And so it's a way to connect. And so there's various ways to do that in Cafe RE. And um, the first way I mentioned a little bit ago was the um, the Facebook page. That is one opportunity to connect. But there's there's a whole host of other ways to connect and and the perks that you that you mentioned. I know in your podcast and in in various episodes you mentioned our online chats that we have. So we have group chats multiple a week, over 20 a week now chats. They're online chats that give us an opportunity to come together as a community. So that's one. Um, number two is you have the opportunity to have an accountability partner. So an accountability partner that you can connect with somebody one on one. That opportunity to connect and and have that that single person that you follow up with and that you can connect with. We have in-person travel, you know, which I know uh, we have Bozeman coming up in August that I'm super excited for, but we also have what we call independent meetups that are more local, not as, uh, not as formal as a, a retreat perhaps. So we have in-person meetups throughout the year. Cafe Area also offers um, courses, uh, various courses throughout the year in which if you're a Cafe RE member, you're able to join that course and learn more about this journey and all the things that uh, that come along with it. You also have an opportunity to connect with a member listing. So we, pr- we provide a member listing and you're able to see who is in your area. Um, the very first thing I did, Odette, when I joined Cafe RE was I looked up to see who was in the Atlanta area, which is where I'm at. And I was able to quickly assess like who's in my area and we were able to meet up for coffee and things like that. So Again, you know, the, the Facebook page is a big piece of our puzzle, but it's only one piece. And so, you know, this opportunity to really come together and connect is the key to this whole thing. And quickly you realize that, you know, I'm not alone. And, you know, it's funny, and we hear this on episodes all the time, that we all know that we're not alone in this. You know, even if it, we all know that there are many, many thousands and thousands of people that are struggling with this, just like we are but we still feel lonely. 
you know, we still feel lonely. And I think once, once I joined Cafe RE, I quickly realized that I am, I'm not alone. And, and not only do I understand that there are other people out there, but they're understand, I understand there's people like me out there. And, you know, that's the thing that you quickly understand when you get involved with Cafe RE and, and, and really start to utilize all the various components within our community. And, and we're growing, as you know, Adette. it's, it's in a lot of ways, we've been around for a while, but now it's just the beginning in a lot of ways too. So it's a great time to join. Yeah. A lot of these perks that you talk about, I mean, they're all part of this big purpose of opportunities to connect. If I could define Cafe Ari, it's an opportunity to connect that was perfectly worded. And all of these different puzzle pieces that stem off of that mission we're not there even a couple of years ago. You know, we used to have one or two chats, online chats a week. Now we have over 20 a week. So a lot of yep. this is happening. The growth is happening in real time through a lot of feedback from members. What works for you? What gaps do you see in the program? What would you like to see more of? So it's really neat because, you know, we're getting feedback in real time and we're growing as we go. I feel like we're in that startup phase and growing so fast and we're like, wow, what are we doing? But just knowing that that opportunity to connect is kind of like the guiding purpose for us keeps us going. And all of these cool creative opportunities are coming up. You said something that I want to just repeat. You said, we already know there are people like, like us out there struggling. You know, when you find yourself Googling, do I have a problem with alcohol? When you find yourself in your thoughts, questioning the decision, we all know that this is something that a lot of people are dealing with. But you said, with Cafe Ari, I found that there are not just people out there struggling, but people like me. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the times when we just start on this journey, we think that nobody on this journey is like us. We know they're out there, we just don't think they're like us. And then when you join, you're like, oh, crap, like, I would be friends with this person outside of finding them here. And that's what you start realizing along the way. So it's, it's amazing. For me, it's really cool to see these friendships being created and seeing that it's more than just about quitting. Seeing that when we get together, we obviously talk about sobriety and we check in on each other. That's also the cool thing that we can just cut to the chase. But also, we're talking about life. These are friendships. These are not just, you know, someone that you just talk to about alcohol. That's it. It almost becomes a relationship, a friendship. And it is really cool for me to witness how these connections become lifelong friendships instead of just recovery friendships. You know, everything kind of merges. And I love that we provide that opportunity through Cafe RE. So it's pretty awesome. If you'd have told me on January the 1st of 2020, the very first day I joined Cafe RE, that I would have made some of the best friends of my life, I'd have told you you're probably crazy, uh, first of all. But it's true. And you talk about it on your episodes and Paul has talked about it for years, how we, there's a lot of differences that we have in this journey, all of us, but there, we focus on the similarities. And one of the most telling things that you can witness, I think, is when you get on one of our online chats and you're sitting in front of your computer screen and you have all of these different faces up on your screen and somebody's sharing, um, it could be an anecdotal story or they could be their story, but you see all of these heads nodding up and down. All of these little faces that you have on your screen, 
that we're, we're all getting used to in this environment, but they're all nodding up and down. As a, in other words, they're saying, yep, that's me. Yep, that's me. Yeah. And that, you know, that's um, for a lot of us, that's reassuring that, wow, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one that experienced that. And it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And, and the, the, the lives that we've impacted and to your point, we've, I mean, pre COVID Odette, we had eight online meetings a week and now we have over 20 and, uh, we have multiple a day and it, it's really cool how we've come together and, and how we're evolving. And, you know, I think that as we've got Bozeman coming up, as you know, in August, but I think really in 2021, we're going to start gearing back up for a lot of more in-person meetings because we know how impactful that is. So yeah, it's a really cool time to be a part of this community. That's for sure. Yeah, it is. And I want to talk on a couple of, before we wrap up, a couple of just more technical questions that I know yeah. a lot of people have. So all of these perks, this is included in the membership, just so you all know. You know, there is a monthly fee of $24 and all of these different pieces and components and opportunities to connect are part of the membership. And a lot of the time people ask, is there a specific program that is followed here? How do you normally answer that question? Yeah, we do get that a lot. And I, I, we don't follow a specific program. In fact, um, I think it's even better than that because what you're able to do in Cafe RE is you're, you're able to take bits and pieces from everybody's journey and story. Some people in our community resonate incredibly well with something like AA, and that's fantastic. And they bring some of those learnings into our community. AA was not a part of my journey, but I've taken certain things that people have shared about AA. I've also taken things that people shared about smart recovery. I've taken things that people shared about recovery dharma. I've taken all these sort of bits and pieces, but we don't subscribe to one thing. We just take experiences from everybody else that might have learnings from those various things. And you can apply those to your journey if you so choose. Uh, so we don't subscribe to one specific thing, but we take bits and pieces from everybody's journey. What's funny is uh, when friends of mine say, you know, Hey, are, are you doing AA? What, what are you doing? I say, I'm doing cafe RE. Yeah. That's my, that's my thing. Um, cafe RE is my, that's my go-to. And of course I have to explain it to them after that because everyone's synonymous with AA and a couple other things. But, um, when they say, Hey, what's your program? My program's cafe RE and I'm able to take all sorts of different things from people as they've, uh, as they've gone along in this journey. And I think that's pretty cool. It is so cool because we do get to learn from each other and, you know, people don't just have to do Cafe RE. That's the other thing. A lot of people ask, well, do I have to quit my other subscription to another sober community that I follow? Not at all. I feel like what makes me really happy in the sober movement is that it's growing so much. And I've said this many times and I'll say it again, you know, the menu of options needs to keep expanding if we want more people to stay on this path longer because the recovery rates aren't that amazing. That's a reality. Mm -hmm. And there is no way to grow those rates if we're doing the same things over and over again and we're failing and we're finding these roadblocks. So to me, Cafe Ari is almost like this very you know, like inclusive place where everyone belongs. You could try a few things and stick to them if they work. Try new things if those aren't working, but you're still tucked into this community that is safe where you could 
openly talk about this without being judged and change your mind. You know, changing your mind needs to be normalized. You know, I was going to AA every day, but now I'm just going once a month. That's totally fine. But I think we need to talk more about how we change within our journey because it's kind of inevitable for us to change while we're on this path. It, it absolutely is. It's change is inevitable. And I'll also say what I think is pretty cool, too, is that, you know, obviously people come and go from Cafe RE, just like any other group. And I know several people that have since left RE, Cafe RE since I've been there. And I still keep in touch with them. And they've been able to take some of the things that they've learned in Cafe RE and apply them to other people. And that's fantastic. One of the things that uh, a friend of yours and mine and one of our colleagues, Kate, who I know was was her episode aired uh, not too long ago, when somebody ends up um, leaving Cafe RE, she always says on her, because she helps with the membership, she always says, if you ever want to come back, we'll leave the light on for you. And I think that's just so cool the way that she said, because, you know, we're going to be here um, and we wish people nothing but the best. And hopefully they learn something if, as if they move on to another group or 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 what have you in life. But um, we're always going to be here and the light's going to be on. So that's pretty cool, too. Yeah, the light's going to be on. You know, you can cancel at any minute. Another technical question that we get, you can sign up today and and cancel a month later. You could cancel in a year. You could come back. You could cancel again and come back again. The light is always on. And, you know, we always encourage people to try new things. If you've been curious and are waiting for maybe a sign or a nudge and you liked what you heard, well, maybe this is your opportunity. So, Alan, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to see you in the flesh in Bozeman in a couple months. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Odette. And I hope to see some new people soon. And I look forward to, uh, to many more months of this. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. Bye. Thanks again, Alan. And team, remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, we can rewrite our stories. I believe in you. I love you guys. This is the experience you need. Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself. Life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Being must be felt. is to awaken.